For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Chapter 15 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter 15. The Answer. The coroner and I drove out to the bridge that afternoon, and, I must admit, I was mighty poor company. Mary's unreasonableness, her stupid obstinacy, when she knew she was wrong and I was right, her willingness to break our friendship at the first opportunity, gave me little room to think of anything else. That she should risk her reputation to run after that man was inexplicable, but it was just like a woman. Show them a place they must not go, or a man they must not see, and they will sacrifice life, liberty, and everyone else's happiness to satisfy their curiosity. It has been true from Pandora to Pankhurst. Well, if she could get along without me, I could get along without her. I'm the easiest-going person in the world, but when it comes to allowing the girl you are practically engaged to to make a fool of herself over another man, I won't stand for it. I knew she would probably come to me afterward and say that she was sorry, and she didn't know, but I made up my mind that she would have to give me an awfully good reason for her sudden interest in Frank Woods before I would forgive her. These thoughts held my attention all the way out. Now and again I would be recalled from my gloom by some question from the coroner. He was trying to solve the problem of who murdered Jim, and I am sure that he must have thought it strange that I was so preoccupied. As we neared the bridge I noticed again how scant the vegetation was on both sides of the road. Anyone wishing to murder Jim would have been able to see him coming for at least a half a mile. On the left side of the road was clay soil, sparsely covered with weeds and shrubs, while a half a mile away could be seen the thirteenth hole of the country club golf links. When we reached the crest of the hill, leading down to the bridge, our eyes at once caught sight of a tall maple tree on the right-hand side of the road, and about two hundred yards from it. As he saw it, the coroner gave a grunt of satisfaction. There's our tree. We stopped the car and scrambled through the thorny bushes that lined the road. The ground was hard clay, with only burdock and weeds growing on it. There was nothing that would lead us to believe that anyone had been there before. When we reached the tree, the coroner examined the ground around it carefully. When he rose, he seemed disappointed. "'What did you expect to find here?' I asked. "'I didn't know what we might find. If the man who fired those shots used this tree, I thought we might find an empty cartridge or two. There ought to be at least some broken twigs or something to show that he was up there, but I find nothing at all. Still, the fact that the tree is where it is makes the theory plausible.' He shook his head. No, now that I've seen how far we are from the road, I don't think it does. Those bullet holes in the back of the car were fired from above and behind the machine. They slanted down, but not sideways. If the tree had been at the very edge of the road, our theory would have been acceptable. 
but if the murderer used this tree two hundred yards from the road he would have started firing before the car came opposite with the possibility that the holes would have been found in the side of the car i'm sorry for when i saw this tree i thought we'd struck the right track there's one thing i can't make out i stated and that is the strange cry of my sister in her delirium look out jim it's going to hit us she called out and i would be willing to swear it had something to do with the murder the coroner thought a moment then turned to me what else did she say nothing that seemed to refer to the accident all the rest was apparently delirium she begged forgiveness for some fancied wrong and repeated that a certain man was not guilty of dishonesty but her first weird cry had to do with the murder i'm sure we walked back toward the road high overhead we heard the droning of an airplane and we both stopped to gaze at it suddenly the coroner clapped me on the shoulder i've got it what do you mean i asked bewildered the airplane man who owns an airplane around here i don't know there are several at the aviation ground what's that got to do with it everything don't you see the bullets fired from above and behind the number of bullets fired those two bullet holes in the floorboard of the car everything points to an airplane it was done a hundred yes a thousand times in the war while i was over there with my hospital unit we used to get a lot of cases of motorcycle dispatch riders who had been picked off by german aviators they machine-gunned moving trains and military automobiles it is one of the simplest tricks of a pilot's repertoire has woods an airplane he was a military pilot in the french army and is the head of an airplane firm but i don't think he has an airplane here he could get one easy enough the clever devil look over there he has the broad sweep of the golf course as a perfect landing ground and this road hasn't a tree on it for miles he could have come down within fifty feet of the ground and followed that car pumping bullets into it all the way he had absolutely everything in his favor for a moment i saw red as i pictured jim helpless before approaching death i could imagine helen's agony as she saw that dim black shape coming closer and closer and screamed in her terror look out jim it's going to hit us yes but how are we going to prove it i asked that's up to us now an airplane has such speed that it was easy for woods to fashion an ingenious alibi to account for every minute of his time on the night of the murder but there must be some holes in it there always is in a manufactured alibi i want you to go over to the country club and check up mr wood's schedule of that night while i examine the golf links to see if he landed there we jumped into my car and drove rapidly to the club i went into the house by the back way to avoid meeting people and asked for jackson jackson what time did mr woods get out here on the evening mr felderson was killed i expect he got here about six o'clock mr thompson the negro replied did you see him at the time did i seize him at that time let me see why no sir i don't think so i don't think i did when was the first time you did see him jackson i guess it was at dinner time sir he was here then you sure he was here all through dinner i asked yes sir 
He must have been, cause he ordered dinner. What time was he through dinner, do you know? The darky scratched his head. I reckon it war just before he ordered me to bring him dat drink. And was he here all that time? I demanded. Yes, sir. He was right here, sir. Where did he sit? Let me see. I recollect now. He asked me special for dat table over yonder by the winder. Can you find the boy that waited on the table that night? The old darky hurried away, but came back presently leading a scared yellow boy by the sleeve. Now, George Henry, you all quit yours contrariness. You answered the gentleman's questions. Oh, I lo, I whoop ya. George, did you wait on that table over there by the window two weeks ago? Yeah, yes, sir. I've been waiting on that table for more a month. Do you remember waiting on Mr. Frank Woods two weeks ago last Thursday night? I asked. The boy was trembling. He rolled frightened eyes toward Jackson, who was glaring at him. Finally he broke into a wail. Oh, Pappy Jackson, does all yous knows? He tell me he goin' to de bath, and effin' anybody ask where he go dat night, to send him in there. Just tell me what you know, George, I said, motioning the angry Jackson away. He, he sat down at de table, but he ain't it none, the boy stuttered. What do you mean, George? He sit down, and he look out de winder. I'll bring him some soup but he got up powerful sudden like he had a call to the telephone, and he ain't come back. Are you sure of that, George? Yes, sir. I asked him did he want dinner after he come back, but he say he ain't hungry. What time was it when he came back? I asked. Half past eight, sir. I gave the boy a dollar, and he went away happy. Jackson had a sheepish look on his face. "'Then Mr. Woods wasn't here all through dinner, Jackson.' "'Drat dat boy! He make me out a liar for a dollar!' he grinned. "'Are you sure, absolutely sure, that you saw Mr. Woods at half-past eight? I questioned. "'Yes, sir. You can't catch me up no mo. I saw Mr. Woods at eight-twenty-five exactly.' I handed him a bill and went into the bar. Grogan, the old bartender, was there alone. Grogan, do you remember who was in the bar between 7.30 and 8.30 on the night of the Felderson murder? Only one or two of the gentlemen, sir. There was Mr. Farnsworth and Mr. Brown and, I think, Mr. Woods. Are you sure Mr. Woods was in here? Well, no, sir, not exactly. I remember Mr. Farnsworth and Mr. Brown. There were probably some others. The reason I think Mr. Woods was here was because he called my attention to the fact a few nights after the murder. There were a few gentlemen in here, and they were talking of Mr. Felderson's death. Mr. Woods said, in view of the fact that the murderer hadn't been found, almost anyone might be accused. Someone asked him if he was worried. We all knew, sir, that Mr. Felderson and Mr. Woods were not very friendly, and Mr. Woods laughed and said that fortunately he had a perfect alibi, and called my attention to the fact that he was here at about the time the crime was committed. "'And you're not so sure that he was?' I asked. "'Oh, his alibi is good, of course, because he was around the club all that evening. I guess he was here, and I don't remember it.' I shook hands with him and left. 
Far out on the golf links the coroner was bending over, examining something on the ground. When I reached him he grabbed me by the sleeve and pointed to barely discernible tracks paralleling each other for almost a hundred yards. Between them ran a shallow, jagged rut where the spade of an airplane had dug up the turf. End of chapter 15「Chapter sixteen of thirty two caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty two caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter sixteen. The Mechanician. We've got it. We're on the trail at last. I exclaimed. I just found out at the club that Woods left the dinner hurriedly and was not seen again until twenty five minutes past eight. We've got to go slow, cautioned the coroner. A man who is ingenious enough to devise this means of murdering a man won't be tripped up for lack of a perfect alibi. I found out what that is, too. He has the bartender at the club, half believing that he was in the bar at the time the murder was committed. I told him briefly what I had discovered. See, the coroner pointed out, if they bring him into the court, the bartender won't be able to swear he wasn't in the bar and the short time that he was absent will convince the jury that Woods is telling the truth, and that our theory is all bunk. But we're not going to leave things as they stand, just when we are hot on the trail. What do we do now? I'm of the opinion that there is a shortcut to the solution of the whole affair. Woods must have had a mechanician with him on the night of the murder. What makes you think that? I asked rather impatiently because we know Woods came back to the club immediately after the murder and played cards the rest of the evening. He returned to the city in another man's car. Obviously, then, someone else must have taken the airplane back to its hangar, since it would have caused too much comment had it been on the links in the morning. Our plan, then, is to find the mechanician and bribe or threaten him into telling us the truth. If Woods hasn't got rid of him, he ought to be around the aviation grounds. We must wait until we are certain Woods is not there before trying to see our man. Then there is no better time than right now, for I know Woods is taking a certain young lady automobiling this afternoon. Let's go then, quickly, exclaimed the coroner. We climbed into the car and sped toward the city. Since Eastbrook is on the aerial postal route, we have a well-equipped aviation field just outside the city. Several of our younger set with special sporting proclivities have taken up aerial joyriding since the war, so that there is always a group of mechanicians and hangers-on around the field. I proposed to the coroner that we stop for Simpson, and he agreed. When Simpson heard who it was, he came down at once. As we sped toward the aerodome, I told him of our findings of the afternoon. He was astounded. You know, I'll hand it to the man who thought up that scheme. That's the cleverest piece of work I ever heard of. If your theories are correct, and he really did do it. What makes you think Woods didn't do it? I questioned. Not a thing, Simpson answered. Only I didn't know Woods kept a plane in Eastbrook. Of course it would be easy enough for him to get one. Lord, think of the possibilities it opens up. It fairly takes your breath away. Automobile bandits aren't in it. 
Imagine trying to cope with a gang of thieves who add an airplane to their kit of tools. Suppose they try to rob the Guarantee Trust Company of New York, or Tiffany's. The robbery itself would be the simplest part of the thing. It's getting the swag away that worries the criminals. Suppose they pull this robbery off, and the police put a net around the city to guard against their escape. Mr. Thief and his gang sail away calmly over the heads of the police. Think of your diamond smugglers. Why, that big British dirigible could have flooded the American market with diamonds and laughed in the face of the customs authorities. I say, it gets you. Yes, but in the meantime, we get Mr. Woods, I said grimly. Don't be too sure of that, Simpson warned. The man who thinks up such a scientific way of murdering people isn't going to be an easy man to catch. Memories of big, whole-hearted Jim came to my mind, and I swore I would get Woods if I had to hang for it. Woods, murderer of Jim, after stealing his wife away, and now making love to Mary Pendleton, putting his bloody hands on her, the thought almost drove me mad. We stopped our machine at the entrance to the field and walked toward the hangars. Three airplanes were out, being tuned up. They looked like birds, ready to take wing at the slightest disturbance. The coroner walked over to one of the helpers. "'Can you direct me to the hangar Mr. Frank Woods uses?' "'Woods?' the man repeated with a puzzled frown. "'I don't remember any such machine here. I know most of them, but I don't think any Woods has a machine here. Wait, I'll ask Bill. He'd know if anyone did.' He walked over to a group of mechanicians and returned in a moment. "'It's the last one down. He ain't had a machine here only two weeks. That's the reason I didn't know the name.' We thanked him and started for the other end of the field. A pilot climbed into one of the machines. Two mechanicians spun the propeller, and the engine sputtered and roared. The plane wobbled and swayed drunkenly out onto the field, then, as the roar increased, it gathered speed and was off. At the door of the woods hangar, a red-haired mechanic of powerful build was cleaning and oiling some delicate-looking piece of mechanism. He looked up with a questioning frown as we approached, then became engrossed again in his work. "'Is this where Mr. Woods keeps his airplane?' the coroner asked. "'Uh-huh,' grunted the mechanician, continuing with his work. Mr. Woods isn't here, is he? No, was the laconic reply. Are you Mr. Woods' mechanician? One of them, the red one, responded. How many has he? Three. Are the other two about? continued the coroner. One of them is, said the mechanic, and he just loves to answer fool questions. The coroner laughed. Excuse me, my friend, but I am in need of some important information. Will you tell me which one of the mechanicians was with Mr. Woods when he visited the country club two weeks ago last Thursday night? The mechanic scrambled to his feet and advanced toward the coroner, his face twisted with passion. For a moment I thought he was going to attack us, but he stopped a foot in front of the coroner and snarled. I don't know who you are, nor what you are, nor what you want, but I ain't no information bureau, see? So get the hell out of here if you know what's good for you. With that, he turned and disappeared inside the hangar. 
We looked at one another. The sign seemed propitious. Would it do any good to try to bribe him? I asked. You can try if you want to. I don't care for the job. Simpson smiled. No, the coroner interposed. He was with Woods that night, and he won't talk. Shouldn't we get the police? suggested Simpson. That wouldn't do any good, the coroner replied. Wait a minute, I think I've got it. And with that he went inside. Above us we heard the hum of a plane. We turned to watch it dip and glide and loop in the afternoon sunlight. The sun, catching its wings, made it stand out against the blue sky like some fiery dragonfly. It flew up, turned a somersault, and nose-dived for a thousand feet, swung round in a wide circle, flew across the field at about four hundred feet, circled again, and slid downward. Closer and closer it came to the ground, until the horizon was lost and it seemed to be gliding along the earth itself at a terrific speed. Finally it nosed up, touched the earth, bounced away as though it were a rubber ball, touched again, and at last came to a stop within a hundred yards of where we were standing. A girl climbed from it, and with a sickening clutch at my heart I realized who it was. Mary had been airplaning with woods instead of automobiling, as I had supposed. At the sight of her, laughing gaily at some witticism that Woods made as they walked across the field towards us, my head spun with hatred and jealousy of that man. I had no time to observe more, for there were angry shouts within the hangar, and the coroner came bounding out, with the red-haired mechanician close behind him. The coroner had in his hand what looked like an iron crowbar, and as the mechanician caught him, this bar became the center of the struggle. We hurried to the coroner's aid, but before we could reach him, the mechanician gave him a vicious kick in the stomach that sent him sprawling and helpless. With a curse, the mechanic picked up the tool they had been struggling for and dashed back into the hangar. The coroner lay writhing where he had fallen and could not speak. His breath was completely knocked out. We pumped his arms until at last he was able to gasp, Get that! Get that! It looked as though you had a little disagreement here, a laughing voice sounded behind us. This isn't at all my idea of a hospitable reception for my guests. We all turned to look into the smiling face of Woods. As we helped the coroner to his feet and began brushing him off, Woods continued, Gentlemen, if you are going to present me with the key to the city, please make it as unostentatious as possible. His smile still continued, but there was an odd glint in his eyes. Mary had left his side and was walking away. She had evidently seen me and had not wanted to speak to me. The coroner cleared his throat. Mr. Woods, I am not here to make any presentation speeches. I am here to accuse you of the murder of James Felderson. Not for an instant did the smile leave Frank Wood's face, nor did he change his expression. He looked us over calmly and slowly, and then said, Why, that is very interesting, but you seem to forget that I have already been accused of that murder once. You were accused on mere suspicion before, but now we have the proof. The red-haired mechanic sauntered out of the doorway and walked over toward the airplane. 
Behind him followed another youth with a bunch of waste in his hand. The coroner pointed to the former. I had the machine gun with which you did the murder, until your man there kicked me in the stomach and jerked it away from me. It's in the hangar now, but we don't need the gun. We've got enough evidence without it to convict you. Woods looked us over carefully. He was by far the calmest one of the party. "'Gentlemen, I have already sent to the papers a statement that I am able to produce testimony as to my whereabouts during every minute of the night when James Felderson was killed. When the trial comes, I shall produce that testimony. If you think that a machine-gun is any proof against me, just step inside and I'll show you that it is of entirely different caliber from the gun that killed Felderson.' We hesitated for a second, I think because of the brazen effrontery, the splendid calmness of the man. A doubt began to form in my mind as to whether he had anything to do with the murder at all. Woods noticed my hesitation and, turning to me, said with a smile, "'Surely you aren't afraid of me, Thompson, when you so readily trust me with both your sister and your fiancé. I longed with all my soul to hit that man between the eyes, to crush that half-sneering smile into his face with my heel. But I let the insult pass and followed the others inside. Here is the machine-gun, gentlemen. If you will notice, it is a thirty-six caliber, and not a thirty-two at all. If you will wait one minute, I'll get you the magazine. That will prove it to you beyond a doubt. He left the hangar, and the coroner picked up the gun. I could have sworn that the gun that I had hold of was a thirty-two. The barrel seems too small for a thirty-six. Why, look here. This is a thirty-two. Here is a caliber marked on it. From outside came the sputter and crack of an airplane engine. Simpson caught it first and dashed to the door. It's Wood's plane. He's going to escape. We ran out of the hangar and across the field toward the airplane, which by now was enveloped in blue vapor. Before we had gone halfway, it was taxicabbing across the field, careening first to one side and then to the other. Suddenly it swerved and turned in our direction. We stood there a little breathless to see what it would do. The engines of the plane droned higher as it came toward us. Suddenly Simpson clutched my arm and yelled, "'Look out! He's trying to run us down!' I ran wildly to one side of the field, not daring to look back, but only trying to reach a place of safety. The sound of the engines came crashing to my ears like the staccato roar of a hundred machine-guns. My legs felt as if they were lead. I seemed to be standing still. One frightening glance over my shoulder showed me the machine, like some monstrous vulture, bearing down on me. I could feel it gaining and gaining. The heavy drone of the engine seemed to fill the air with its noise. A pitiful sense of helplessness gripped me. I knew I was going to die like a rat in the jaws of a fox terrier. I screamed aloud in my terror and pitched headlong onto the turf. With a roar and a rush of wind that almost lifted me from the ground, the airplane passed over me its wheels no more than four feet from my head. I am not sure to this day whether Frank Woods tried to kill me or not. 
I don't know whether he was cheated of his game when I stumbled and the speed of his motor carried the plane off the ground, or whether he was just trying to put the fear of God in me. I will swear, however, that as the motor passed over my head, I heard Frank Wood's voice raised in a demoniacal laugh. As the drum of the motor passed and I knew that I was safe for the moment, I raised my head to see if the devil should be planning to come back. With joy I saw that he had risen to a height of fifteen or twenty feet. Suddenly the plane swooped up as though Woods were trying to loop. For a second it tipped sideways like a catboat reeling over in the wind, and then there was the sound of splintering wood and tearing silk, and the plane crashed miserably to the ground. End of chapter 16「We hurried over to the smashed plane, the coroner leading. Woods, in his effort to run me down, had forgotten the telegraph wires at the end of the field. Too late he had seen them and vainly tried to lift his machine clear of them. The wires had caught a wing and sent him crashing to the earth. We found him underneath the engine, quite dead, the fall having killed him instantly. We made an improvised litter out of one of the wings and carried him to the nearest hangar. As we placed an overcoat over the shapeless form, I heard a sniffle behind me and found the red-haired mechanician at my side. "'You didn't get him, you dirty cops. He got away from you after all.' "'Yes, he is safe now,' I murmured. "'Sure, and he would have been always if he hadn't been daff over women. "'He never had no luck when he played the women. "'His taking that skirt out this afternoon was what give him the hoodoo.' "'The coroner came over to him. "'Now that we can't get him, "'will you tell us about the night Mr. Woods killed Mr. Felderson?' "'The mechanic showed himself distinctly hostile to the coroner.' "'Oh, no, you don't, you fly-cop. "'Think I'll spill the beans and get meself in Dutch? "'You can go to hell.' "'I'll promise you won't be prosecuted "'if you will tell us what happened that night.' "'He looked us over suspiciously, but apparently reassured. "'He said, "'Well, that's fair enough, "'especially since I didn't have nothing to do with the croakin', "'although I know pretty much how it happened.' "'The boss there came over to the plant, "'the international plant, you know,' about two weeks ago, and had me bring that plane out there over here. We always got along together, the boss and me. We wasn't pals or anything like that, but we understood each other. I'd seen for a couple of months that the boss had something on his mind. I knew it wasn't any Jane, because they never worried him none. He worried them a lot, but somehow he just took em as they come. He talked with me some, he claimed I was the best mechanician he had over there, and I figured it out at last that what he was worrying about was money. He had spent a lot and was free and easy, and it worried him to figure that he was going to go bust pretty soon. The first day I was here, he brought a woman out, a swell looker. I didn't find out till afterwards that it was Felderson's wife, and he kind of kidded her along about helping him over the rough spots, by lending him a little of her dough. 
I sort of figured out he was going to run off with the woman, cause the next morning he come out and said we could take a month's layoff if we wanted to, as he was going on his honeymoon. I thought he was going to take me along, but when he said that, I made up my mind to beat it back to the plant, to keep from going bugs watching them other guys calling themselves mechanics, tinkin' around them buses when they didn't know their job. It's a darn wonder more these fool dudes out here ain't been killed. Something must have slipped up, because he come out late that afternoon cussin' like the devil. He had one whale of a temper when he got started, the boss did. He took me with him in the bus, and we cruised around the country for a while. Every time he spotted a straight stretch of road without too many trees, he'd come down and look it over. Finally we found that straight stretch of road out by the golf links at the country club, and that must have suited him, cause that was the only place we come to after that. He mounted that machine gun in there on the plane, and it was then I decided he was gonna slip something over on somebody. He didn't take me with him after that, but two or three times when he come into the field, he'd swoop down on that there square target he made and put over in the corner, and... I'd hear that rat-a-tat of the machine-gun a-goin'. I asked him what he was going to do with it, and he said, We're a-goin' out one of these nights and kill a skunk. The afternoon of that night we went out to the country club. He come out here kind of excited, but cool, if you know what I mean. You could see there was something on his mind, but just the same he had his head with him every minute. Get me? He told me as soon as it began to get dusk, to take the plane out to the country club and land it on the links, about a half mile from the clubhouse, and when I get there, to flash me pocket lamp until I see him light a cigarette on the clubhouse porch. I'd done as he told me, and he come out. He wasn't dressed in a jumper, but just a cap and a raincoat over his clothes. He told me to stay there, and after I started the engine, he streaked away. He left about eight o'clock and was back in fifteen minutes. He slipped me a fifty and told me to take the plane back and to forget I'd brought it out. I asked him had he killed his skunk, and he laughed and said I made him pretty sick anyway. I told the boys to have the flares out in the park as I was going to test the machine, so I didn't have no trouble in landing. He stopped and rolled a cigarette. That's all you know, is it? the coroner asked. That's all I knows, so help me, Henry. "'But ain't it enough?' "'He looked around at the three of us "'who had been listening intently to his story. "'I should say it is,' said Simpson. "'End of chapter 17 "'Chapter 18 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney "'This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. "'32 Caliber by Donald McGibney, Chapter 18 I listened to my forebears. Helen had come home. She preferred living with mother and myself rather than opening up Jim's house, which, she had been told, belonged to her. Yes, her memory of past events was gone, and each night I sat with her and repeated bits here and there of the experiences through which she had lived. Every now and then a thought would come to her and she would be able to fill in parts of the narrative, but this was seldom. 
In a way it was fortunate, for I was able to leave out all the sordid details of her past, and give her only the recollections worth keeping. As soon as she is quite strong, Dr. Forbes is going to reconstruct the tragedy for her, and he says he has every reason to believe that she will be successful in restoring her memory. In the meantime, she is entirely happy and content, and even more beautiful than ever. Mary has not spoken to me for a month. Somehow we could not get together. I realized now, hasty and peremptory I had been, in commanding her not to go with Woods, and I tried a thousand different ways to make her realize that I was sorry. Whenever I found we were invited to the same dance or supper party, I lay awake half the night before, planning what I would say, how I would approach her. It was a delightful game to play, because I always came out the victor. I made her say and do just the things that would make reconciliation easy, but when we actually met, it was vastly different. We were both invited to the Rupert Smith's ball, and I made up my mind that before that evening was over, I would be back in her good graces on the same old footing. As much as I hated being treated like a younger brother, it was far better than being treated like a stepchild. As soon as I saw her come into the ballroom, I hurried toward her, but at that moment the orchestra began a foxtrot, and she whirled away in the arms of young Davis, smiling into his face as though she adored him. Davis holds a girl so tightly that it is actually indecent, but she seemed to enjoy it. I was by her side almost before the music stopped, but she turned away without looking in my direction, and literally hanging on Davis's arm, made her way from the ballroom. I finally caught her alone while she was waiting for some yokel to get her a glass of punch. "'Mary, may I have a dance?' I blurted out. "'I'm sorry, Mr. Thompson, but my program is full,' she answered sweetly, too sweetly. "'But there aren't any programs,' I insisted." "'Nor have I any dances left for you,' she countered. "'Mary, I'm awfully sorry.' "'Oh, there you are, Mr. Steele,' she laughed over my shoulder. "'I almost thought you had forgotten me.' I fled, leaving that ass Steele, cooing the most puerile rot about how he couldn't forget her, and so forth. I called up Anne McClintock before the McClintock dinner, and begged her as my guardian angel to put me next to Mary.' She agreed on the condition that she could put the Stearns woman, the parlor Bolshevik, on the other side of me. I consented, and through the entire dinner, Mary talked to old Grandfather McClintock about the labor disputes, although she doesn't know the difference between a strikeout and a lockout. She actually seemed perfectly contented to shout into that old man's ear all evening, though I did everything I could to get her attention, except spill my plate in her lap. Afterwards I heard her telling that Stearns woman what a charming couple we'd make. I tried to call on Mary twice, and both times she was out, to me. Finally people began to see that there was a serious difference between us, and they avoided inviting us to small parties together, so that I saw her at only the largest, most formal, and most stupid functions. I had told Helen one day, that I would be late to dinner on account of an important case. About three o'clock in the afternoon, however, I found that a certain book I needed was at the house, so I jumped into the car and went up after it. Mary's electric was out in front. 
For a moment I contemplated flight. Mary so obviously disliked me. But, being determined that no girl in the world could keep me from going where I pleased, I trotted up the steps. The door opened just as I reached the porch, and disclosed Mary hastily, saying good-bye to Helen. The sight of her leaving so as to avoid me angered me, and some piratical old forebear of mine came down from above, or came up from below, at that moment, and perched on my right shoulder. "'Treat em rough,' he whispered. I hurried over to the door, walked in, and slammed it after me. Helen laughed and said, "'Warren, dear, aren't you getting noisy?' "'Helen,' I said, "'will you please go into the other room?' "'Helen, stay here,' Mary ordered. "'I shall do neither the one nor the other. I shall go upstairs.' She turned to leave. "'If you go, Helen, I'll go with you,' Mary announced. Another ancestral spook with dwarfed hairy body and gorilla arms climbed to my left shoulder, sat down on his hunkers, and whispered in my ear, "'Treat em rough!' "'You're going to stay right here,' I commanded, grabbing her by the hand. "'Let go of my hand,' Mary demanded. "'I am not going to stay here.' The sight of her sweet, indignant face made my heart jump into my throat. Helen laughed and went upstairs. "'Mary,' I began, my voice softening. My ancient forebears made wry faces at each other and hopped down from my shoulders. "'He's a fool,' announced the caveman." "'I'll say he is,' answered the pirate. "'I'm not going to stay here a minute longer. "'Will you please get out of my way?' Mary said coolly. "'No, I won't,' I yelled. "'I've had about enough of this, Mary. "'You think you can dangle me on the end of a string "'like a damned jumping-jack "'until you see fit to let me have a little rest?' "'My guiding ancestors hopped back on my shoulders. "'That's the stuff to give em, yelled Hunkers. "'Treat em rough!' shouted Captain Kidd. "'You know I was right when I objected to your going with Frank Woods. "'It wasn't a friendly thing to do after the way he messed up things in my family.' "'Well, if you hadn't been so dictatorial—' "'Why shouldn't I be dictatorial?' I shouted, "'while my ancestors held their sides with laughter. "'And this being my house, I'm going to talk to you as loud as I please.' If the girl I love, as no man ever loved a girl before, tried to go out with a man I think is wholly unworthy of her, why shouldn't I object? I'll do it again. I want you, and I'm going to have you, if I've got to fight for you, even if I have to fight you for you. Suddenly Mary buried her face in her hands. Her shoulders shook. Don't cry, Mary. I know I've... I'm not crying. I'm laughing, she gurgled, dropping into a chair. Bups, you do look so funny when you get excited. I went over to her and made her make room for me on her chair, and then I put my arm around her. Mary, darling lover, why did you go out with Frank Woods that day? Why, Bups, I was hunting the same proof that you were. I felt all along that Frank was guilty. I'm a brute. "'You're a foolish boy,' she said, twisting one of my few locks of hair. She snuggled closer. "'Dearest of dearests, when are you going to stop teasing me?' I asked. "'Never, Bupkins,' she replied. "'I just discovered that it brings out your strong points.' 
"'Do you remember what you said when I tried to ask you to marry me?' I whispered. She shook her head. "'You told me to wait until Helen was well.' "'You know, Bupps, the first thing I said to Helen this afternoon was—' "'What?' "'Well, how well you're looking.' With her face close to mine and those lovely lips smiling at me so inviting, there was only one thing to do, so I did it. "'The kid's got the stuff in him after all,' said Hunkers. "'I'll say he has,' agreed Captain Kidd. The End of Chapter 18 End of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney This was read for you by Dawn in Minnesota. Thank you for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.